Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, I'm James, this is Pete. G'day everyone. 8th of December, this is episode 197. We're going to be doing like a, you know, uh, what, what was that? Was that you? Was that me? That was a ding Wait. on my computer. Well, there we go, okay. Um, show's off the rails already. So, it's going to be like, we're going to be talking to Gideon Rosner, good friend of the show, reflecting on the end of the year, coming up to silly season, uh, and, you know, just what we learned, what we're looking forward to for next year. So, that's going to be a really fun interview whole bunch of other stuff. We've got a lot of industrial relations talk, a lot of uh, underpaid people uh, working on farms, which has been a big news story this week. Uh, vaccines coming down in the UK, big story. Pete, anything you're looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to chatting with Gideon because the bloke has been on telly literally most days this year. And of course, he's had the IPA with you podcast. So he's been front and center throughout this whole thing. He had some very big predictions about this decade uh, last year, at the end of last year, which have not got off to the strongest of starts. But I'm really interested to get his takes because he's a really interesting guy and it should be great. Also, my my hero, my hero this week is an awesome one. So very excited about that. Very cool. All right. So let's start off with this industrial relations stuff. This is basically the last week of Parliament's being devoted to this new bill, which is looking to, uh, you know, depending on what which side of politics you d- d- subscribe to, it's either entrenching casual work or uh, destroying the very nature of uh, employee-employer relations. So, you know, it's a, bit, it's a bit controversial, I'd say, Pete. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so this is, this is the government's omnibus industrial relations bill, which means it's sort of just a variety of things that they're addressing before, as James points out, the year ends. Uh, some of those changes are under changes that would apply to 12 awards in industries impacted by the pandemic. Um, part-time employees working at least 16 hours a week can agree to extra hours at their ordinary rate of pay. Previously, uh, if employers wanted to give them extra hours they had to pay the penalty rates or, or overtime um criminal sanctions for just wave theft and um deliberate and systematic wage theft of employees has have been beefed up or it's proposed that they'll be beefed up and the government will also amend the registered or registered organizations act to allow for the disamalgamation. what a word that is of unions um that's obviously aimed at the problems that the cfmeu uh, having, um, which is really, really interesting. If you want to learn more about infighting in unions, just Google CFMEU. Um, now, obviously, yeah, so the this this is for the government is saying this is allowing uh, more flexibility for employers, more opportunities for employees. The ACTU is saying, together, governments, employers, and unions should set a target to halve the number of insecure jobs over the next decade. That was Sally McManus, the secretary of the ACTU. Now, James... The reason we talk about this stuff is it's a bit dry on the surface, let's be honest, industrial relations, but the reason this stuff matters is particularly for young people. Flexibility around hiring uh, enables young people to work. And a lot of the things you you would be hearing about the minimum wage and casual working and insecure work at the gig economy and all those things are true. Most people that are on a minimum wage don't stay on a minimum wage for very long. It's, it's, it's the the first step on the economic ladder, if you will, James. And most people that are on the minimum wage aren't even poor. They're, they're actually just... Uh, kids from middle-class families and things like that. So um, the reason we cover this stuff is, is because of that. And I think that anything they can do at this time to make it easier for employers to hire people is a good thing. What do you think, mate? Yeah, so unions have never loved casual work because basically casual work can undercut what union workers ask for things, especially, uh, you know, the famous case when Uber came out with 
taxis being undercut by the rates that Uber were charging. So I get that. And unions have really been using coronavirus to push. This is the dangers of casual work. I mean, look at these security guards that are also working these other jobs. Look at these, uh, you know, I mean, basically we pointed the finger at one pizza delivery guy as the whole reason for South Australia to go into a lockdown. Like, I get why unions don't like casual work. But in a world where so many people have become unemployed in Australia because of coronavirus restrictions and you're not seeing the job recoveries that you were expecting to when this idea of like, oh, we can just freeze the economy, those jobs aren't coming back as quickly as you can. The idea that we need more restrictions on how people can get employed and more barriers for people to become employed, uh, it, it's really bad. And and. Casual work is going to make sure that a lot of people who have been working in hospitality and can't get those jobs back because some places have closed down, other retail places have closed down, that was casual work as well. Casual work is going to help these people get jobs back, get money back and get people off of JobSeeker and JobKeeper, which are going to go away eventually. Uh, Look, I get that unions are there to protect their members, but the idea that casual work is going away scares me. Oh, exactly right. And and the unions actually... is that? Do you know what? That's actually just a semi-trailer going past my house. So Maybe another casual to... worker. So that should be praised. That, that interruption to the podcast should be praised. They actually had their regulations around when they could drive up and down this road uh, lessened during the pandemic when everyone was lining up for toilet paper. So that's an interesting little side note. But um, the unions, like it's open to question why the unions have so much influence in this debate and why they're engaged so much by the government. Obviously, you can see why the ALP does that. But the unions represent less than 10% of the private sector workforce and, and and clearly casual workers you know who, who don't earn that much and don't work that much are less likely to fork out to pay for a union membership so there's a, a massive slice of self-interest in this from the unions in arguing for making it more difficult for the workforce to be casualized um, just to think about the minimum wage that we talk we've mentioned a few times but just in case you've never heard it before at the moment in australia the minimum wage is like 1950 uh, and then there's you know there's heaps of complications on top of that, but the basic rate is 19.50 or so, and the uh, rate of, if you're a single person with no dependents, the rate of welfare is um, oh it's been beefed up of course, but prior to the pandemic was about seven dollars fifty. So the fact that you couldn't say you know if you wanted to work 15 bucks and someone wanted to hire you for 15 bucks, the government said no, that's illegal. You have to go home and sit on the couch and only earn seven bucks of course, is a huge injustice. So I always think about that and I always try and tell that story as much as possible. And when you're having this debate over Christmas at the Christmas barbecue, remember that story because that is, um, you know, it's just a crazy situation. Um, So with the fruit picking, James, which you mentioned earlier, so the McKell Institute, which is a labor-aligned think tank, released the results of a three-month investigation around blueberry jobs around Coffs Harbour. and uh, because of the coronavirus lockdowns, thousands of backpackers flocked to the region. Now, there was reports of people getting paid three bucks an hour. There was people, reports of people um, getting abused and harassed by labor hire companies because they uh, were asking for their pay and things like that. There were people being put up in horrific conditions. So these jobs are jobs where you actually stay on the farm um, and being put up in horrific conditions, which were much worse than that were promised to them. Um, these are... We're obviously not talking about stuff like this. Like these are obviously horror stories where people are reneging on their contracts. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about labor um, deregulate, labor force deregulation. And the unions use horror stories like this, which are really bad and should be um, should be uh, investigated to uh, justify a lot of the things we're talking about. What was your read on that, James? 
Uh, yeah, like you say, there are horror stories out there. I've had friends that have, you know, traveled through Australia, gone to these fruit picking places and have heard some pretty, uh, terrible horror stories. And, you know, you just hope that enough word gets out that no one signs up for those $2 places and they go out of business or at least have to rediscover what it is to run a farm. Uh, but yeah, this is the thing. If, if the casual work goes and if backpackers are no longer picking these fruits, then there are going to be things down the line. There are going to be other farms that can't uh, survive and there are going to be prices raised on goods that you think are really cheap and turns out they're actually not that cheap once unions get involved. So again, look, uh, it's a time when we need to be thinking about how to get people employed and not a time we need to be thinking about how to not make people employed would be my very simple answer to where this debate is. Exactly right, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, when restrictions are brought in, the, the unemployment is sort of spread throughout the economy rather than the terrible things happening in one place, which is always makes it a more difficult story to tell. Okay, James, let's get into the COVID-safe summer. So we saw in Victoria uh, the last restrictions for the year were lifted. I'll just run through a couple of them, 30 people over to your house at once. I know James especially has been making use of the reduced restrictions around Melbourne's nightlife over the last few weeks, which is great. Dance floors are back Guilty. at at dance floors are back at weddings. Um what else we got here? Public trans oh so with masks, there's lower masks, uh the less you don't have to wear as mask as often. The private sector, twenty five percent of their workers are on site, which will be moving up to fifty percent on the eleventh of January in terms of offices. Um that will be less for the Victorian public sector. James, what did you make of these? So here's the thing with restrictions. So it, it, it's it's hard to get fired up about these because you become so thankful that some like your life is becoming back to normal, and it's yeah. you're it's supposed to you have to force yourself to remember that life should be normal in the first place. Like it's not a return to normal that should be praised. It's uh, like normal should have been the benchmark the entire time. But uh, the thing about this is Victoria is now 39 cases, uh, 39 days since the last day of a community transmitted case. Now, if that's not the benchmark for higher caps than 30 and for, as you say, like caps on the amount of people that were returned to the CBD, if we haven't hit that benchmark yet, when is the benchmark? Like th- if 39 days, I, I didn't think elimination was possible. I'll say it. I did not think we'd ever get to a spot where we'd have 39 days without a case, but we have. But if we're not at the benchmark yet, I don't know when the benchmark is going to be hit. Like when we're all vaccinated, like is it seriously like not till December next year that we can really return back to normal? Because again, that wasn't the agreement. Yeah, I'd definitely say that's what it is. And I 100% agree with your point about um, everyone's like, oh, how good is this? It's like there's still a lot of regulations in place and everyone's like been through such a difficult period um, that they're just happy they can see their family and that they can do a few things and, and all that. But there are still a lot of restrictions in place. And as you say, you know, 39 days uh, in a row without anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, any restriction, you sort of have to think, why is that there? I'll, I'll mention a few of the other states now. Dancing will be allowed again. Uh, the ABC actually used the word defloor in their report about this, James, which I feel it to be a bit of a personal victory because I've been pushing the word defloor for a long time well, if now. If it's so with dance- your taxpayers, it should be your lingo. That's right, that's right. So... Um, Wedding dancing are now allowed again at weddings, which is great news for lots of individuals out there. I actually heard bad during news the week, from the bad guy from Footloose, but anyway, that's right. I actually heard during the week that Revolver in Melbourne was taking bookings. So Revolver's open, but you have to take bookings. I don't know who. This is a uh, this is a notorious twenty-four hour nightclub here in Melbourne. So imagine that's why I'll Pete's the, uh, eyes have lit up. I'll have the six to eight a.m. Anyway, um. 
And in so WA, of course, now let's get on to our Western Australia listeners. WA Premier Mark McGowan has announced people from New South Wales and Victoria will be able to enter the state without needing to quarantine from Tuesday. People from South Australia can visit again, but we'll have to quarantine, and that's from Thursday. So obviously Mark McGowan spewing that he'll have to come up with a policy apart from we're going to close our doors to everyone forever. Uh, well, he knew it was popular, and I just go, like, the borders were never going to be closed down forever. It was the idea that the borders will just be closed until the, he wins the election, and then they'll open up again. But I think Mark McGowan's has found out when your opponent has a business card that he gave to John Howard saying, I'm the next premier, uh, prime minister, Mark McGowan just goes, you know what, I got this in the bag. There is literally no way I can lose this election. Let's just open the borders now. Like, I, I could oversee a second wave, and I'd still be the golden child. He's, that, that's his biggest threat. His biggest threat is becoming overly complacent, Mark McGowan. No, I don't think because that's his biggest... I think there is no threat. I think there is absolutely no threat. No, There is no <laughs> level of complacency that can be reached that will be threatening to Mark McGowan at this point. Wait, is which is good news for Mark McGowan. Do you know when the WA state election is? It's either March know, or April next year. That Saturday 13th of March. Isn't Google the wonderful thing? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's not a very long period of time. So I think uh, Mark's going to have a very happy Christmas. Anyway... Vaccines, I also James. saw him say. I also heard him say that uh, state hard border closures can return, quote, in a heartbeat. So good luck to anyone that's booking anything in Western Australia for the next couple of months, because you never know. Like that's the thing yeah. with border closures. Like if they can open up, great, but they can close at any time, and then you're absolutely left reeling. Well, yeah, I mean, it got paused. They had one of those pauses as a result of that uh, that person in New South Wales who got it, and just any rogue pizza boxes floating around that might be. Uh, yeah. conveying an absolute uh, super spreader version of the virus. Can no, I also saw this on Twitter last time. night. There's, there's a bunch of people from New South Wales and Victoria that are currently doing the 14 days of isolation. Now, mm. if you can now fly... if Like Pete and I, after this podcast, you go, you know what, it'd be really good, a few beers on the Perth jetty. That, that is an <laughs> option that is available to us right now. But if, I, if we left yesterday, we'd still have to do 13 days of hotel quarantine. So I yeah. think if they just get a negative test, they can get out, would be my thought. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, or at least be able to. Um, what's it called? Quarantine at home. But yeah, like those people, like the yeah, there's people on Twitter going. So what? I've got to stay in here for two more weeks after. I wouldn't mind going to the Perth Jetty, James. That sounds like a great idea. Mm, I'm a little busy, but uh, it was more of a hypothetical situation. <laughs> it's a little close to home for me. All right, let's get into vaccines, James. The UK. Uh, okay. has, oh, you go. Oh, okay, well, let's go. So, uh, UK have approved the uh, well, one of the vaccines that have come out. So, that's going to be making its way into the British public in the next couple of weeks. And it's ahead of Europe. It's ahead of the US. And it's very interesting. Now, Pete, um, I, I guess I'll start off, like, as you were saying off air, that you think this is all a 5G uh, tracking device. So, I don't know <laughs> if you want to start off there or talk about rights to trial legislation. Uh, I might go with option B, James. I might not get get on that uh, the five G train. No, so um, where so as, as James mentioned, the the bio BioNTech and Pfizer don't know how to say that immunisation is will be available for like, for like next week in the Wait, UK. You don't know how to say Pfizer? <laughs> Have you just not watched the news the last two weeks? I don't know how what the P comes in. I don't trust the news people to say it right. Anyway, now uh, in the EU, right. So, so the UK have approved it, but it hasn't been approved in the EU yet because they have a stricter regulation around this stuff. There was a bit of a spat between the Brits and uh, members of the EU because the Poms were saying 
they were very up and about about it. Alok Sharma, the business secretary, said, in years to come, we'll remember this moment, as the day the UK led humanity's charge against this disease. Now, Andreas Michaelis, uh, Germany's ambassador to the UK, said, why is it so difficult to recognise this important step forward as a great international effort and success? Um, so there was a bit of a spat there. And of course, the problems have been able to do it quickly, uh, more quickly than the, than the EU now. Some people have been claiming this is because of Brexit. It is not because of Brexit. Uh, there is legislation which allows countries to get out of the EU um, legislation regime around vaccines and medicines and things like that. But so any country in the EU could use that, but because of the political space created by Brexit, Britain have been able to make use of that. And to be honest, it's a great thing. It means that people in the, in the UK will be able to get this thing earlier than people in the EU. And this really is a case of, you know, to put a really fine point on it, massive regulation costing people their lives because people in the UK be able to get it quicker than the people in the EU and you know you have to say that you have to point that out because you know proponents of massive regulation always talk about you know life saves and things like that but that that is what's going to happen here because the wheels of EU bureaucracy move that much slower than everywhere else yeah, this is what I wanted to bring up right to try legislation which um you know if you're new to this it's basically the idea that uh, if you if there are these drugs that are still in, you know, uh, held up in regulation or still in experimental phases, but you desperately need them in order to live, you can basically sign a waiver saying, like, I know what I'm getting into. Uh, so, uh, sorry, just got an email. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. This is the problem with push notifications. So, that's what right to try legislation is. So, this idea that uh, UK have approved coronavirus vaccine, so members of the public that are like, look, I know the risks at this point, I know the relevant legislations in which this is still being reviewed, but frankly, I'm exceptionally at risk and I want to make sure that I'm still alive for when they are uh, approved. That should be an option that's open to people. Uh, they should absolutely be able to take the drugs now. So I'm really glad that the UK are doing this. And I just hope that when European citizens and maybe US citizens are uh, seeing that the British are uh, vaccinating themselves, they go, hang on, why isn't this the case in my country? And that's, of course, one of the things that Mike Pence uh, and the Trump administration in general expanded during their term in the US was right to try opportunities for people throughout the US. And of course, it's, you know, like... If people, and that was that was more to do with people who are absolutely terminally ill, like if people are really at you know the end and there's, they haven't got any other options, of course they should be allowed to try experimental drugs. Um, and if it works, that's great. And they're actually creating opportunities for people people that are less sick. So uh, once again, that 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 would be a really good thing. And the barriers in place for for creating vaccines and medicines and stuff are massive. Like in the US, for example, example, it takes I think five hundred million dollars in ten years to get a to get a, um, a medicine approved. And that just means that there's a lot of medicines out there that could be really helpful that just don't have the backing required. So yeah, great thing. And uh, hopefully it uh, gets expanded. Very cool. All right, let's move on to heroes and villains. So we'll start off with heroes. As always, a grunt the pig, freedom snort. Uh, so this is for people that have stood up for freedom and justice around the world this week. So Pete, tell us who gets the uh, grunt the pig, freedom snort for you. Well, this one's a really good one. I mentioned at the top of the show, I was very excited about my hero this week. Uh, libertarian economist Walter E. Williams unfortunately passed away last week, but he was a wonderful economist and a wonderful libertarian advocate. He was born in 1936. He was an African-American guy from the segregated housing projects of Philadelphia. He faced massive racism and racist violence. As a young person, he was drafted into the army, into uh, pre-integration Georgia, which he didn't much care for, and he 
wrote to his boss, who at that time was the Commander-in-Chief, John F. Kennedy, about uh, his thoughts on that. Now, he obviously went on to become a an economist and a college professor, and his most famous works are 1982, The State Against Blacks, and 1989, South Africa's War Against Capitalism. And the important thing that um, Walter Williams did was he talked about the, the measures that are meant to help poor people are meant to help people from racial minorities that are actually the, the state measures that actually end up making things worse. Things like minimum wages, which were pricing people out of the labor market, uh, public housing, which were, which was terrible and um, pushed people into to areas which just made things worse for them. Really poor education standards, welfareism, things like that. Um, and that's really important at the moment because we're having this massive global discussion about uh, disparities in outcome between people from different ethnic groups and, and different groups in society, and some of the reasons being put forward for that, I would, you know, to to probably undersell it, I find unpersuasive. But some of the things that Williams is talking about are really important and actually do have a genuine, uh, practical, pragmatic impact on people's lives. And if we want to get serious about talking about this, we can't just and like I fall into this as much as anyone else. We can't just talk about, oh, you know, unconscious bias is stupid. We actually have to come forward with some solutions about what we should do to uh, end the, race, the disparities between different groups and societies. And Williams nailed that um, throughout, his, throughout, his, uh, throughout his career. And he was, you know, a bit of a firebrand, a bit of a contrarian. You, know, he's, you always sort of have a bit of a soft spot for the outsiders. You're on the MIPA podcast. So anyway, Walter E. Williams, check out his work. Uh, give it a Google um, there's a lot of great stuff being written about him in the last week, and he's my hero this week. Yeah, very cool. Uh, my one is uh, this pretty heartbreaking video that came out of the US this week. So you had Angela Marsden, who runs a restaurant in Los Angeles, and she is making a tearful video about how her business has been closed down despite all the effort she's put into making sure that outdoor distancing guidelines can be followed. But now that California's also said that outdoor dining is also banned, uh, she's basically lost everything and she's posted a video maybe a lot of people would have seen it already but she's posting video she's walking around and literally down the road like in a car park near where she works they've approved a movie studio to go ahead making a movie which has all the cafeteria tables laid out pretty much exactly as she laid out her restaurant so she loses her business because she's a restaurant but the movie can go ahead because I guess in California if you're well connected and you're rich you don't have to really follow coronavirus restrictions. That's exactly right. I mean, that's like the two Australias. You know, if you're big end of town, if you're public sector, if you're, you know, got a public sector union behind you, the situation is obviously the same in the LA. And that was a heartbreaking video. So check it yeah. out if you haven't but, seen uh, it. But GoFundMe set up to support the restaurant has raised $90,000 so far. So big lesson out there, the internet doesn't always suck. Most of the time it sucks. Sometimes it's awesome. Like Target Tory we had earlier on this year. That's exactly right. All right, this James. Is my talking, this is my talking Gatorade for the people watching at home. <laughs> I was like waving a Gatorade bottle just like as I was making a point, like a like an angry dictator. <laughs> this is my talking Gatorade. You know he's serious when he's got his Gatorade in his head. Um, okay, so let's move on to the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week. Saul, run the tape for me, mate. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. There you go. That's the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run for our villain of the week, James. Who have you got this week, mate? All right, I'm going to make this short because we've got an interview coming up. So uh, this, this is like an incredibly fast-growing playpen I have of US politicians that have completely lost it. Started with Gavin Newsom saying indoor dining is banned. 
as surfaced, uh, as footage surfaced of him enjoying some indoor dining without masks. Last week, he had the mayor of Denver say, don't travel for Thanksgiving, and then he travelled for Thanksgiving. Uh, this one uh, is up there with all of them. So, Austin Mayor Steve Adler has come under fire after he urged residents to stay home and curb the spread of coronavirus while he was vacationing with his family in Mexico. So, he makes a video saying, don't travel, stop the spread, but he's doing it. Literally from his, like, what was it? Was it actually a timeshare in Cabo? But it was like, yeah, he's like holiday home in Mexico. Incredible scenes. Like, how, course, how alienated from the world do you have to be? This is literally a Simpsons gag when Mayor Quimby gets a press conference, crashed, you know, just roll the tape, because I'm not going to do it better than Simpsons. People of Springfield, because of the epidemic, I have cancelled my vacation to the Bahamas. I shall not leave the city. Hey, you! Get that steel drum out of the uh, mayor's office. Sorry. Is there a prerequisite, Pete, uh, in the US to be elected, you have to have completely been isolated from the entire population of the world? Well, there must be. It's actually incredible how many of these have happened because once one or two happens, and they've happened in other parts of the world as well, um, you just think once one or two happens, everyone's like, all right, no mucking around now. I, can't, I can no longer go to Cabo. For this, for this next three weeks. So, yeah, incredible stuff, James. And uh, keep us up to date because you are our correspondent in charge of uh, American politicians being hypocritical with regards to COVID. So. It was the timesharing carbo. I've just reread the article, timesharing carbo. Incredible. I'm glad you clarified that, James. All right, now my uh, villain this week is, speaking of the swamp, now this is quite swampy. It's very closely related to swamp uh, in, in every respect because last Thursday was World Soils Day. Uh, and as a result of there being... World Soils Day, it emerged that Australia has a national soils advocate called Penelope Wensley. Now, that uh, the description of her role is a world first in terms of elevating soil health to a level of national significance. The position of advocate was established to raise awareness, James, of the, right, of the vital role soils play and to provide strong leadership and advocacy. Now, I don't care if people would want to talk about dirt on their own dime, but uh, Penelope earns $1,000 a day for 60 days' work a year. Whoa. Uh, and, and there's an optional extension. This is dirt. That was a curveball. That was a curveball. I thought this segment was going one way. It went a completely another direction. Yeah. Uh, but there's an optional extension of up to 100 days per year if required. Uh, now, we talked about Scott Cam being the $345,000 a year national careers ambassador. So not as much as that, but still pretty good. Wait, did you say 100 um, days if required? Extension of up to 100 days per year if required, yeah. Who decides if it's required? Does she just get to go, you know what, there's more to be done here. There is not enough another- soil advocacy. Give me another 40K. I need another 40 days to talk about dirt. Now, uh, now obviously, no soil is very... We've got a lot of rural listeners, and soil is very important, but the, it's open to question whether we need a national soils advocate. Why is the government, the coalition government, James, paying $60,000 a year for someone to talk about dirt? That's not dirt cheap. Penelope Wensley, uh, you're my villain of the week. That, that physically hurt. That hurt me... <laughs> That hurt me in five different locations in my body. Um, Actually underlined it on my yeah. thing. That was... Let's just go to you. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show. One of the best friends of the Young IPA podcast, IPA Policy Director Gideon Rosner. Welcome back. Great to be here, boys, as always. All right, so we're coming into silly season for 2020. New stories are starting to dry up a bit. So what we wanted to do with this one is do a big uh, reflect on the year, the year that's passed. I mean, biggest year of my life at least, just from a news standpoint, from like where the world has been standpoint. So I don't know, we'll just kick it off. So uh, 
I'm going to talk about one thing. We'll start close to home here with the IPA with you. This was your first podcast venture of your own. Mm. Uh, you were talking to people that were living life through coronavirus. Like, what, what were some of the things you were learning from that? Well, look, I mean, as uh, your viewers know, and as IPA members know, we opposed lockdowns basically from the beginning. We launched, we released a video uh, with me in Bank Place uh, saying we need it in lockdown now and on the 4th of April. Uh, which was a hugely controversial thing to do at the time. Now I was the you know bloke fronting that, and I got uh, torrents of abuse and all sorts of things from trolls from on Sam Neil. That yeah, Sam Neil the actor. Um, mm. Yeah, he called me a clown in a suit and things like that. You know, it's one thing when the Van Battams of the world have a go at you, but when it's like the bloke from Jurassic Park, I mean, it, it stings a little bit. But you know, nevertheless, you know, uh, that's my job, and you know, getting abuse on Twitter is almost a KPI in our line of work. Um, what surprised me or what pleasantly surprised me was the volume of correspondence I got privately from people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't know what this means for us and our families and our businesses and our jobs. Uh, nobody else is saying it. Thank you for you know, um, coming out like you did. Thank you to the IPA, which is great because that's what we do at the IPA. We say things that need to be said that other people aren't saying. So uh, it was... Um, you know, as, as terrible as the lockdown was, it was, uh, I guess I can say, touching that uh, so many people resonated with the message. Um, but that said, the stories were absolutely brutal. You know, people moving into state because their business of 20 years had folded, people who didn't know whether they'd be able to make their mortgage payments, people who couldn't visit sick relatives, a paraplegic woman who wrote, literally wrote to me and said she had nothing to live for now that her few remaining daily outings uh, were impossible that she just had carers coming in the morning to get her out of bed and in the evening to put her back into bed so uh that was uh you know confronting sort of and tough part of doing the ipo with you because you know you, you as you as you guys know you, the best content comes from being a little bit humorous a little bit of a you know game nobody, nobody downloads a podcast to listen to a pale imitation of the seven thirty report so it was finding ways to, uh, you know, provide something that's interesting and, and a little bit irre irreverent and, you know, dare I say, entertaining, but doing so against the backdrop of some uh, really awful stories and uh, the uh, and what is undoubtedly uh, Australia's great economic war crime. So we know here in Victoria we had the longest lockdown in the developed world, one of the most brutal ones. Were you Old standard, apparently. The gold standard. Were you surprised that something like that would happen here? I guess, what did that tell you? You know, were you disappointed that so many people accepted it and that and that, um, that so many people went along with it? And what did that tell you about human nature and even the fragility of democracy in a place like Victoria that's always been democratic? Well, I guess that's an, a quick, an answer in two parts. So firstly, am I surprised that it happened? Yes, I am. Uh, I've been suspicious of government coercion and the power of the state my entire adult life in fact going right back to when i was a teenager so but this is what happened in melbourne and all over the western world this year was like i couldn't have written a dystopian novel worse than this in fact it was geared towards my worst my personal worst fears it was a dictatorship of big public health uh with cops with unlimited powers enforcing it uh and democracy being completely thrown out the window uh was i surprised that people accepted it uh yeah look i was um I guess the observation to make is that, you know, Australians are good people. Uh, we are. We're, we're, we're some of the best, friendliest, most kind, open-hearted, smart people in the world. I think what the the coronamania in Australia, the fact that these premiers 
recorded such high approval ratings after what they've done to us. I think that shows the power of fear. And what concerns me is that politicians know now that if they scare a population enough, they'll basically go along with anything that, you know, the, the bureaucratic managerialist industrial complex recommends. So that's a challenge for uh, all of the, us, uh, every free citizen in Australia, but more to the point for the IPA, because uh, the, the, I think we could be more important now than we've ever been in our 77, 78 year history. Yeah, I wonder, like, if there's an alternative universe out there where instead of just saying for Victoria, stage four restrictions just for, uh, you know, the original one was like, okay, this is just six weeks. To, uh, this is six weeks of stage four, then it's back to mm. normal. Uh, if he'd been, if we'd been told it's going to be 112 days, whether the public response was going to be different. Because, like, I just wonder if it's also like this... You know, uh, this like gambler's urge, like, okay, just another two weeks, I can do that. Okay, we did that, just another two weeks, just another two weeks. And suddenly you just like, you know, you don't feel the same sort of power over you as the idea of like, no, it's 112 days. So, I don't know, that's interesting to me. I'm also reading yeah. The Plague, like Albert Camus, which like, I have no idea how yeah. he predicted what the reaction was going to be so clearly. But he talks about how when the whole fear of the magnitude of lockdown just takes over you, you just mm -hmm. lower your eyes. You don't think about uh, the next six months. You just think about, okay, how am I going to get through today? How am I going to get through today? And you don't really want to push back against the government after that because all you're just trying to do is get to sundown. Mm, mm. Now, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't read The Plague. I've read a few of uh, Camus' other works, you know, The Stranger, obviously, and The Myth of Sisyphus and things like that. But, um, yeah, that will have to go on my summer reading list, I think, because uh, it's very pressing. Another thing I'll recommend while I'm here, and I wrote a, a, um, an article about this for the IPA Review, is The Mandibles by Lionel Shriver. Now, Lionel Shriver is this fantastic anti-woke author, and it was the first thing of hers I'd read. And it tells a story about what happens to a sort of upper-middle-class American family when the US debt bomb finally detonates in the country and the, and the world moves off the US dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, it was so hauntingly realistic that at times during the lockdown with all the sort of trauma and, and chaos of that going on, I had trouble distinguishing the book from the reality uh, that I was living in. Uh, and, and it tells a very, very pressy and cautionary tale about debt. And that is another big, big risk that we have uh, ahead of us, not just because we have we're heading towards having a trillion dollars worth of debt as a country, which would make anybody wake up and take notice, but also because through this, there seems to be a bipartisan consensus on both sides of politics that the way to cure any economic ill is to uh, borrow a whole lot of money, you know, get the government printing presses into uh, into gear and, and splash it around in investment and stimulus. Uh, it, the economic debate in Australia has been heading in a very depressing direction for a very, very long time. It's all, almost all economic debate seems to be focused around demand-side economics, how to stimulate, how to create jobs, how to, you know, I, I use this line a lot, but it's nevertheless true. It's almost as if, you know, the, gov the governor of the Reserve Bank could recommend paying half a million people to dig a big hole and half another million people to fill it in again. That's the level of economic sophistication we have. Um, we don't have the same kind of debate we had, frankly, when John Howard was in the lodge, looking at ways to take the jackboot of government off the throat of private enterprise. We don't have governments making in the main, you know, ScoMo and Josh have come, uh, you know, have, have done their best and had a few ideas floating around, but we don't have the kind of courageous economic reform uh, debate that we had, you know, when I was a teenager and developing my first political interest. 
this is really, really frightening because I, I, I fear that we're on the verge, you know, a few governments down the track of having modern, modern monetary theory becoming mainstream, this idiotic notion that you can just print as much money as you want because the government controls the currency. Uh, so as bad as all this is, we have to worry about re restrictions to our liberties going forward under a whole lot of reasons, but uh, we, we have to worry a lot about whether the Australian dollar will be worth the paper it's printed on. So I'm buying Bitcoin and I'd recommend everybody to jump on now because uh, you know, uh, major financial institutions are thinking along similar lines to me and they're hoovering up as much Bitcoin as they can. So, uh, and I have to stress, this is not financial advice, consult your own tax agent, et cetera. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really think that this, this, web of debt between nations this never-ending money go around of paper currency that's not really backed by any underlying assets other than you know government fiat i think that in our lifetimes it could collapse in a very very big way but i don't i don't want to get to you know alex jones on everybody um you know we'll, we'll just have to wait and see what happens yeah, I've still got all my stuff in the original Bitcoin batch. But bringing back to coronavirus, I mean, this came out of this, this really interesting article in the conversation uh, about halfway through the year. I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically arguing that Australians have always seen themselves as the descendants of Ned Kelly. And I just don't think you can see yourself as that anymore with the level of, um, you know, just faith that the government restrictions are going to always be right and the lack of pushback from anyone. I mean... Yeah, for for a country that said, okay, we're we're bush rangers, we're convicts, we're the, uh, the larrikins, we're, we're frontier men, yeah, Mountain yeah, exactly, yeah, we're, like uh, Gallipoli's our favourite movie, and yeah. they're the ones that like shoved it up the British lieutenants. That's I, I, just not the national characteristic anymore. No, and and it's hard to know why that is. It really is. I'm a, a part of me says that maybe that was a bit of a myth, or you know that that didn't start with the coronavirus. As far as I've always observed, there's a unfortunately large section of the community that likes rules that likes being told what to do that's why we have some of the most restrictive nanny state laws in the world but i also think that you know that's not the real australia that's not our culture we've been systematically weakened by big government for generations we have come to um depend on government for all manner of services and payments and uh supporting industries and so on now some of that's you know, the legitimate role of government to create a a, um, a safety net for the most vulnerable and some of it isn't but what it's created is a big bureaucracy it's created a lot of people whose livelihood depends on not just delivering those services but spruiking the need for them and uh, the, uh, unfortunately we've seen a whole cottage industry of people who quite like these lockdowns because they kept their jobs no matter what they're not subject to market forces they never get sacked uh, they were quite happy to sit in at home doing their job over Zoom in their jammies uh, and, and posting things to Slack all day. As did I, I might add. I, I actually didn't mind the lockdowns too much. I was, you know, I had my bad days and good days. I miss going to the pub, but I had a job. You know, I was lucky. Uh, what bummed me out was seeing what was happening to Melbourne and to the people in it, people, you know, the, my dry cleaner, the bloke who works at the kebab shop, I get along with. The tears in the eyes of the owners of uh, your favourite place, Bolt the Spleen, when I oh. went through last night before the second lockdown, came into effect i just don't understand how people can either not notice the anguish their fellow australians are going through or not care i guess that would probably be my biggest disappointment that for all the talk of the left of compassion and and uh, and, and everything else uh there was no compassion for people whose lives are ruined by this thing none 
I, you're exactly right. There was sort of, you know, people people are just sick of lockdown. That was sort of the take, you know, people are sick of lockdown. It's like, no, they're not. They're not yeah. sick of lockdown. They're not bored of watching Netflix. They're in pain. Their whole life's been destroyed. Exactly. Um, but the, the thing for me, Gideon, which I took out of this year was like that, um, you know, like we're, sort of our lives have been pretty good. Like it's just, you know, it's just a sunny liberal optim- optimist. Things are going to get better forever. That's just the way it goes. But this year, it's like, you know, when you're sitting at home, in like your fourth month of lockdown, you're like, you know what, this can get taken away from you. So, yeah. and, and and to be honest, like politics has always been a bit of a spectator sport for me. Like it's something I'm interested in, but fortunately hasn't really affected me. Like yeah. that changed this year. Like it really did affect me. And well, they, I think- they say, you know, when you don't take an interest in politics, politics takes an interest in you. And yeah. one thing that the left will have to deal with is that uh, a lot of people who otherwise took a cursory interest in politics are fired up. Uh, mainstream Australians, quiet Australians, battlers, whatever you want to call them, more than ever before they have achieved what uh, our opponents on the left like to call class consciousness. They know now that there is a divide between honest, hardworking people and the uh, never-ending cavalcade of uh, snake oil salesmen, grifters, uh, carpetbaggers and two-bit spivs who subsist of the never-ending pot of money that's either stolen from uh, you know people who work hard for it, or worse still, future generations. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting political cross current. Look, I'll, I'll say this as well because it's easy to get pessimistic. I'm still not pessimistic. Um, I think that we are going, we are moving now into a a new historical era. I think long after we're dead, there will be historians writing books about what the corona hysteria did to the world and, and how we acted afterwards. And we will be going through a new COVID normal, but this will not last. It will be transient. History tells us that you can suppress a free people for a while, but not forever. Uh, people have, you know, the, the human spirit has overcome worse forms of authoritarianism than this. Uh, look, it might not happen in our lifetimes even, but eventually this will self-correct. To paraphrase uh, Barack Obama, the arc of history bends towards freedom uh, and we just need to be ready to go through some hard times and to really step up and make our case because I, I think we may be in, on the verge of entering a new dark age, but it's just an age. It's not a permanent arrangement. It is not the downfall of Western civilization and it is not the downfall of the human spirit. Yeah, it's like I'm not going to pretend that stage four wasn't tough for myself and a lot of other people out there, but it certainly wasn't 50 years of communist rule. So you just think about <laughs> well, how... Correct. Yeah, you think about how protective Eastern Europeans tend to be about individual liberties and how sceptical they are of big government. Like, that could be the same sort of awakening people have here. Like, okay, if you want to take my freedoms away, if you want to send me back into that, your arguments better be bloody good. Yeah, yeah. Well, the bit, one of my favourite responses to the lockdown all year was recently when South, when you know Stephen Marshall found COVID in the pizza box or something and shut down Adelaide for two days. And I posted on my um, Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash the full Rosner. And it's this bloke... Um, who was in Adelaide doing a Vox Pop and he sounded like he was Hungarian or Czech or something. And uh, he, he and I'm, I'm sh- I'm, I hope that Saul or Mitch can block me out with what I'm about to say, but he was asked, what do you think of the lockdown? And he said, you know what? This lockdown is the biggest bullshit in the universe. Uh, These are us in our own homes for nothing. Well, he turned out to be pretty prescient because three days later they realised that they made a mistake in some sort of modelling and they had imprisoned South Australians for nothing. Uh, it goes to show my thesis, actually. Well, firstly, your thesis, Bolt, that people who've actually lived under authoritarianism, authoritarianism know it when they see it. Um, but secondly, that there is more wisdom in the average Australian person walking down the Rundle Mall than there is in all of our parliaments put together. Uh, and our job, I think, at the IPA and those of us in the liberty movement need to 
keep making the case for taking power and money and, and the force of coercion away from centralized government uh, and the bureaucratic managerial elite and giving it back to ordinary people. Because as we know, as history tells us, that is the best and probably only way of ensuring human flourishing, uh, strong societies and our happiness overall. So Gideon, that I, I remember that clip. I absolutely loved it. I sent it to a few friends. It was just like, this fella definitely knows the score. He knows what he's looking at. Now, yeah. we talked a little bit about the future in general um, around the world. Now, obviously, a big part of what happens in the world is the United States. You're a Trump fan. I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Hmm. You said he predicted he would win 40 states. Uh, I did worse on social media. I put a map on the eve of the election with like <laughs> New Mexico and Virginia and Colorado and all these states thinking that he'd pick up maybe one of them because I've... You know, um, Anyway, I've, 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 I've gotten the Peter Van Onselen tweet, treatment since, and I probably deserve it. But yeah, look, it's not easy. I've, I wrote an article for Penthouse, a great publication, uh, subscribed today uh, about the election result. I had to write it after, you know, when the loss, you know, I, I dealt very badly with the loss, I have to say. I've been around politics a long time. Um, but as I said in the article, I really went through the, seven, the five stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, eventually acceptance. But it was hard. And I think the reason why it was hard is because, you know, we know, you know, and I know there'll be people who watch this and think, oh, you know, it, it was vulgar, it was crass, the tweeting and everything else. The fact of the matter is we had somebody who was doing more for the cause of small government in his own inimitable, unique, and yes, sometimes ugly way than any leader we've seen in my lifetime, probably since Ronald Reagan. Um, it, if we were able to get the landslide that I think Donald Trump was on track for, but for the coronavirus, then it would have, it would have, dealt that fatal blow to wokeism, to big government, to the overbearing state, to the political and cultural elite the world over. That would have been the knockout blow uh, because now Joe Biden has pulled a win away um, by hook or by crook, it would seem. Uh, that cause has obviously been set back. But the good news is that there are 70 million Americans who feel very disenfranchised and they're not going anywhere. They've been, they're not going to forget uh the trump years they're going to again i make the point class consciousness the, things will only change when people get active and demand their rights back and i think in the us and probably here as well eventually people will sorry i know you just said uh you got burned from your last prediction but let's just do one more 2024 oh. the republican candidate is 2024 yeah um okay well i who I want, look, the talk of Trump coming back, obviously he deserves another go if he wants it. He'll be old. Uh, his star might have faded by then, but you can never rule Donald Trump out of anything. We can't even rule out him actually winning this election. I think it's extremely unlikely, And but I can't tell the good news from the bad news over Twitter and everything else. I honestly don't know what's happening. All I think the cases. mandate's gone. Like, no one... I, look, I think, he, I think he's gone. Anyway... 2024, look, Trump could run again, in which case, you know, it's worth a shot. I would like to see uh, somebody said to me a while ago that Tucker Carlson is the only person capable of carrying on the Trump legacy, and they're absolutely right. President Tucker my would, be, uh, would save the Western world and freedom and democracy. Um, who it could be, uh, oh, I don't know. Then you get down to the Nikki Haley's of the world, who I quite like and did a great job at speaking truth to power in the UN. Um, I would hope that you know the Republican Party doesn't go back to boring schmoes like Jeb Bush and, and people like that. Uh, but it's it's the great test for the Republican Party. Can they uh, can Trumpism survive without Trump in office? Will he be a figurehead for the party going forward? Will they blast him out? Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, Tucker twenty twenty four for me. I reckon it's absolute shoe in. Who? Tucker. 
I yeah, reckon twenty twenty four absolute shoe in. He'll be the nominee. Not saying like he's going to win, but we will be nominee. Yeah, yep. I just reckon it's hard to go from being a TV host to being president. It's got to oh, be. No, that's well, a good one, Pete. <laughs> Like, who's done it? There was the bloke in Israel named um, Tommy Lapid. Oh, it's also Donald Trump, which is. Like, but he he ran businesses and stuff. Reagan um, was obviously. Yeah, an but actor. he was a TV star. He Wait, was a TV was star. Yeah, Trump. but what is Car- is a TV Tucker- star? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah but but Boris. what has Tucker Carlson done apart from being on TV? I could I'm um, speaking for ignorance here. He might have done all sorts of things. No, nah, he's been TV's like basic whole professional career, but he's a TV star and he's got a lot of. That this, was Donald uh, Trump, I might add. What yeah, Donald this Trump is what I'm saying. Like. The idea that like, oh, a TV star can't do it has literally been proven wrong. Yeah. A TV I mean, star a did practical... do it for four years and he did a bloody good job. Mm. Uh, I just mean from a practical standpoint. It. Anyway, so uh, Gideon, yeah, I hate to dig up more uh, dirt here, mate, oh, yeah. but you proclaimed the 2020s were going to be the roaring 20s. This is this time last yeah. year, a period when we rejected woke politics and embraced liberalism. Now, what did you make of the explosion of woke authoritarianism that happened across the West in the wake of George Floyd's death? Um, is this a passing fad or is this something much worse? No, it's a passing fad still. I, I do fundamentally believe that. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about writing a correction piece to the Roaring Twenties piece. I, you know, we try to be optimistic at the IPA. So at the start of the year, I said, you know, the Twenties the are going to be different. We're going to move away from, you know, people are going to, start doing all the things I just outlined, demanding their rights back, demanding government relinquish its power and so on. I think that'll still happen or it's, it's still possible that it will happen. But in terms of wokeness, I mean, that is, is um, it's eating away at itself. You know, the, the, plenty of people who aren't from our political persuasion, far from it, are coming out against cancel culture now. A lot of people are saying, what, what, do, we, what do we need this for? What are we doing all this claptrap for? There are real problems to talk about. I think as more and more people get cancelled who are on the left, I think uh, the emperor's clothes will come falling off. So I think wokeness will be something that... Uh, anyway, yeah, the other thing to remember about, about political correctness and all this, you know, uh, these fashionable causes, this, this you know, performative, uh, symbolic gestures and everything else, it, it's something sort of rich Western countries can engage in. But there ain't going to be too many w- uh, rich Western countries uh, for the next little while. So governments might have to start talking about things that actually matter, getting people into work, making sure people can get a home, uh, making sure that uh, our education system is actually equipping people with skills like reading and writing, not cluttering it with you know garbage dreamed up by uh, postmodern uh, uh, eggheads in our universities, things like that. So I think, I think wokeism is on the way out. As for safetyism, as for the uh, bizarre love of someone like Brett Sutton, who brought nothing but pain, misery and inconvenience to us all, I think that we're stuck with for a little while. But again, people will get sick of it eventually. The human- well, I will point out... Yeah. Spanish flu was also there in 1920, so you know the the allegory isn't dead yet. Not, the 2020s have a long way to go. You might yeah, still, still be- nine years to go. That's true. Maybe people will realise. Look, life is short. There could be a a dangerous pandemic tomorrow. You know, YOLO. People might uh, resent uh, you know having 9.5 percent of their income hived off, for example, to glorified union slush funds. That is the compulsory superannuation racket. They might say, no, life's too short. I need that money now for a ho- home for my family. Uh, or I want to take control of my own investment portfolio. I don't trust the banks and unions to look after my money. Maybe that'll change. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Very cool. Gideon Rosen, thanks so much for your time. Cheers, guys. And well done on a great year. Okay, thank you too, Gideon Rosner. A lot of fun on that one. Let's fly through some stories that made us laugh this week, Pete. If I could start off at the uh, Chicago Teachers Union. Get in there. 
Yeah, so obviously schools, whether or not they should be open or closed in America right now, big talking point. Chicago Teachers Union wanted to get in on the action and uh, caused a bit of a stir. Didn't backfire for them. So uh, this is a now deleted tweet. The push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny. So if you think that kids need an education and if you think that uh, schools should be open because children from disadvantaged backgrounds might not be able to get the same level of attention, same level of education standards if they were at school, you are a sexist, racist and a misogynist. So bad luck out there. That was actually put up there without any supporting documentation on a Sunday armor. This The social media person has just gone out on an absolute limb and has thought, well, you know, if my bosses just say words without actually having to know or care what they mean, then I'm going to do it too. And yeah. they've got in all sorts of trouble. They've also so, been... Uh, you go, sorry, mate. I was going to say, so the deleted tweet was then followed up with, fair enough, complex issue, requires nuance, and much more uh-huh. discussion. More important, the people that the decision affects deserve more, so we'll continue to give them that. Appreciate the feedback of those truly in the struggle. It's not a complex... <laughs> it's not a complex issue. Like you, It is you a just... complex issue, but uh, you can't really solve it in uh, the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, misogyny. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, like going back to school is clearly good for everyone and, in- and including people from disadvantaged backgrounds even more. And uh, you're just saying words, Chicago Teachers Union. Now, this is this is exactly what Walter Williams was talking about, the things that are meant to help disadvantaged people end up uh, hurting them more. Um, uh, and, and there was actually our mate, James Lindsay, who is now our mate, James, because yes. he was on the show last week, tweeted out that an image of that and then the image next to it of MSNBC, who are also massively woke, I would point out, and they wrote, when COVID-19 closed schools, black, Hispanic, and poor kids took the biggest hit in math, comma, reading. So it's racist to send kids back to school and it's racist to not send kids back to school. So a bit of a faux pas from the Chicago Teachers Union. Mm. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking uh, similar areas. So this report uh, came out of The Telegraph. Students at the University of Manchester oh. want the word black to be banned from lectures and textbooks and, and claims it symbolizes negative situations. This includes the word uh, black sheep to be removed from lecture slides and books, black male and black market. Uh, this is... You know, this is the 21st century approach to race, which is I need to see race literally everywhere it is. Like that yeah. that's the modern... How to be anti-racist is to only think in terms of race. Yeah, yeah, to make everything about race. And they, they had a... Um, in that in some report I read, they had a uh, linguistic experts in there who pointed out that actually none of those things were... If, it goes without saying, but none of those things... I didn't need a linguistic with, expert to tell me that. <laughs> Well, it always helps. I uh, just needed a local dictionary and like an ability to just converse with others and read and interpret things to know that the word blackmail actually does not refer to black people at all. That, that's exactly right. And uh, the, key word, the key word here for me, James, is that undergraduates at the University of Manchester came up with this because it feels like something that was come up with on a Friday morning after a particularly heavy night out on a Thursday night with other undergraduates and rather than deal with complex issues of race, well, I mean, you're at uni, you know, this is the first year, you know, Thursday uh, I, was a, I was a nerd at uni, so, uh, <laughs> I don't, well, I don't yeah, know I, this I, world. I, I wasn't making it to Friday morning lectures, but anyway, they, it would be like, oh, just remove them all from this text, that's going to be our argument, and um, that's what we've come up with. All right, James, I want to talk to you about, now, Christmas is coming up, mate, and I know that it's always hard to find people gifts, but here is something that you could really get uh, get involved with for the members of your family. This is a, a newsletter from the Greens. If you thought 2020 was a wash-up, 
You need a quick pack of legends to sort it out. This was an e-newsletter to Greens members. Our Richard D. Natale, get it, legacy tea towel, flew off the shelves in August. So we've expanded our range. Former Senators Bob Brown, Christine Milne, and Scott Ludlam, all available in time for Christmas, 21 bucks. They've been marked down from 24 to 21 bucks. So for $21 only, you could get your parents, grandparents, friends, a Bob Brown tea towel for Christmas. Don't miss it. Is there a deal on bulk orders? I don't know. There could be a deal. Uh, can you get back to me on that? All right. Last one I want to talk about here is uh, South. Speaking of Simpsons references, South Africa wants to block out the sun. So <laughs> this this story is my favorite thing I've read. Uh, basically, they want to come up with a way to protect uh, local water supplies in Cape Town. And, you know, you can think about desalination. Uh, you can think about all these other things. And, and so, you know what? If team researchers, they've thought, why don't we stir the pot a little? Why don't we really get some ideas flowing on this quiet day? Uh, and they want to block out the sun. Peter. Oh, I'm, I'm on board with this. You know, we talk about rather than restricting the whole economy to fight climate change, what we're going to do is come up with some man-made or human-made solutions to climate change. We're going to use our innovation, our technology. And I know this is a little bit outside the square, but blocking out the sun might be part of that. Um, we've seen people talking about creating clouds so that it can rain, but apparently they're going to shoot uh, dust particles into the air just to divert the sun. And if that's what yeah, they so this is to my know, problem with it, because yeah, as you say, they want to dump uh, vast quantities of gas into the atmosphere above Cape Town to preserve the local water supplies, block out the sun that way. Mm, you need the big metal disc. You need to go yeah. full Simpsons. You just need a like gi- giant tower, full metal disc, blocks out the sun, follows it across the sky, and then sets with it. None of this pumping gas stuff. I want the full metal disc or nothing. I reckon, I mean, I'm no engineer but or, or scientist at all, but I think the disc would be easier. Like putting dust. It definitely wouldn't be easier. <laughs> Just get a crane. Just get a big crane and a big disc. That can't be too hard. Surely there's someone out there that can do that. So I mean, All Cape right. Town's a, a wonderful town. I'm sure we've got engineer and uh, scientists who listen to scientists. Scientists. Yeah, that's the professional term from the Latin. Uh, get in touch. Tell us which one would be easier. I think it's the gases by far. Anyway, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Gideon Rosner. Uh, and thank you all for listening. If you like the show, make sure you're listening through Apple Podcasts. Uh, uh, sorry, make sure uh, if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, you leave us a review. Tell, tell more people about the show. Uh, we've also got Looking Forward, Viral Banter. We've got all these other podcasts that we're doing here at the IPA. But uh, yeah, spread the word. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Peace.